So today we're in the third week of our Advent series, and by way of a brief reminder, just in case you're wondering what Advent is and what it has to do with Christmas. The word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which is itself a translation of the Greek word parousia, which is used in the New Testament to refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so Advent is a season in which Christians all over the world prepare ourselves to celebrate the original coming of Christ into the world at Bethlehem on Christmas Day, which is itself a preparation for celebrating Christ's future coming in glory one day, his parousia to judge the living and the dead and then reign forever and ever and ever. Amen. Our guide for this year's Advent journey is the prophet Isaiah, a prophet who has long been recognized as someone who's like vision, whose anticipation uniquely anticipated what the coming of the Messiah into the world would look like, what it would entail, what it would be, ways in which it would be surprising to all of us. We started in Isaiah 9. Last week, we were in Isaiah 11. And just as you heard the Bennett's read there, we're in Isaiah 35 today. So Isaiah 34 and 35, they are a couplet of sorts. They're these contrasting prophecies of judgment and grace, of desolation and restoration. We won't read Isaiah 34, uh, but it's essentially a proclamation of doom upon the Edomites. The Edomites were one of Israel's neighbors, a constant source of drama and conflict because apparently... Humans have always hated their neighbors, okay? This tale goes back as old as time. In fact, the entire story of the Bible is, in a sense, the story of us not being able to get along with our neighbors and God saying, sorry, but you're going to have to figure that thing out because it's kind of the greatest commandment. And so here in Isaiah 34, right, the Edomites, they're terrible. They suck. They're terrible to Israel. And so God promises to handle them. And God's judgment upon them is described in these very, you know, like ecological and zoomorphic terms. We are told that their streams will turn to pitch, that their soil will turn to sulfur, that there will be towers of thorns and cities of thistles. And then in my favorite rhetorical flourish, we have this little bit of like campfire scary tale that's designed to spook the children a little bit before you put them to bed. This is Isaiah 34 verse 14. It says, wildcats shall meet with hyenas. Goat demons shall call to each other. What is a goat demon? <laughs> Sounds terrifying. The night monster will settle there and find herself a resting place. This is a wonderful memory verse when your children are acting like idiots. I can tell you <laughs> What does Isaiah 34, 14? The night monster will settle here. It's pretty dark. Then we get to Isaiah 35, and, and God shines some light on this darkness by revealing that this proclamation of doom that he gives the Edomites is all in service to this homecoming that he envisions for his people. Because in order for God to bring his people home, he first has to, to you know, subdue all the hostile forces that would make such a homecoming impossible, right? And so that's chapter 34. And now in chapter 35, we get this homecoming also described in similarly ecological and zoomorphic terms. We're told that streams will bubble up in the desert, that waters will wind through the wilderness, that barren land will explode with bloom and blossoms, and then most importantly for any children in the room today, there will be no more night monsters, right? Isaiah 35 verse 9, no lion will be there nor any ferocious beast. It's a lot of flora and fauna talk, isn't it? <clears throat> it is beautiful, but then we actually get to this very poignant description of what this homecoming will mean, what it will look like for God's people. Okay, this is verses three through six again. Encourage the exhausted. Anybody exhausted today? Just me? <laughs> yeah. Encourage the exhausted. Strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart. Anybody with an anxious heart this morning? 
Say to those with anxious heart, take courage. Don't be afraid. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. And then this homecoming prophecy poem, it ends with this image of the highway of holiness, the holy way, this road, this path that God's people will walk on to get back home. Let's listen to what Isaiah says again. A highway will be their roadway and it'll be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way and fools will not wander on it. Now, no lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow, and sighing will flee away. Now, that sounds like a good homecoming, doesn't it? Well, I'm ready for it. And apparently, Jesus thought this sounded like a pretty good homecoming, too, uh, because there's this really interesting story in the New Testament where Jesus is interacting with a few disciples of John the Baptist about whether or not he's the Messiah. And in that conversation, Jesus makes clear that he was familiar with Isaiah's famous poem of homecoming in Isaiah 35, and that Jesus, in a very real sense, saw his ministry as the fulfillment of it. Jesus says, hey, what I am doing here on planet Earth is I am fulfilling Isaiah's homecoming. I'm bringing all the redeemed and the ransomed back home. We'll read the story. It's pretty brief. Luke 7, verses 18 through 23. It says, the disciples of John the Baptist reported to him about all these things. And summoning two of his disciples, John sent them out to the Lord, to Jesus, saying, hey, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? Now, when the men came to Jesus, they said, well, John the Baptist has sent us to ask you, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and he said to them, you go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this story, the part that really piques my interest is this last little phrase, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. That's what Jesus says. Because here's Jesus, right? He's doing all this good and gracious stuff. He's healing and helping people who desperately need healing and help. And yet he knows that there is something about what he's doing that easily provokes offense in us. Jesus knows that there's something about what he is up to that easily offends us. As good and gracious as it is, it offends us. And I'd be willing to bet that you have felt it before, right? You have felt the offense rising up at some point. I know I have, typically because, why? Well, it's typically because God has failed to meet your expectations, you know, in some way, shape, or form, because it's awesome that Jesus healed some people. It is. But there sure do seem to be a whole lot more people who Jesus didn't heal, you know what I mean? I mean, I don't know how to verify this with mathematical precision, but it certainly seems to me as if there is an awful lot of healing that does not happen in this world. I mean, show of hands, any of you ever asked for healing that hasn't happened? I know I have plenty of times, more times than I can count. feels like I've seen a whole more not healing than I have seen healing. And uh, we could spend a lot of time addressing all the ways in which God's many apparent failures to meet our many expectations provoke offense 
in us toward him. But I want to focus in on two things this morning that I think are most important both for our text here and the Advent season more general. And these two things about Jesus that provoke offense in us are time and other people. Time and other people. So um, a little ways back, I was driving home from church on a Sunday. I pull onto our street and I see that Allison and the kids are out in the front yard putting up Christmas lights in October. <laughs> so I, uh, I pull up, you know, and I get out. I'm like, oh, what's going on here? And they're like, oh, we just thought it'd be so fun if we just went ahead and decorated for Christmas. Now you have to understand, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are people who Faced with any situation, scenario, they ask themselves, what's the worst that could happen? Why not? You have any why not people in the room today? Why not? What's the worst that could happen? Y'all are great. We love y'all. Um, and then there are other people, reasonable, responsible people like myself, <laughs> who instead look at any situation, we instead ask what, Jamie? What's the most annoying thing that will obviously happen in this scenario? That's what we ask. In fact, it's a spiritual gift I have. If you've ever wondered what's the most annoying thing that could happen in this scenario, just come ask me, and I can tell you your future, man. I can see the annoying things in motion long before they happen. But be that as it may, I am a very big proponent of trying to stay married. (laughs) I'm trying hard, man. So I didn't say anything, but I did think to myself, man, this is stupid, and my kids are going to ask me if it is Christmas yet approximately 6,000 times over the next 90 days, and I can't even blame them, man, because when the Christmas tree is up and the elf is on the shelf just like Pavlov's dog, their little kid's brain starts drooling for those presents, and <clears throat> as usual, I was right, and I've been asked if it is Christmas yet approximately 10,000 times over the last 60 days. Letters to Santa, please, y'all. My kids have written dissertations to Santa Claus at this point. But all in all, you know, upon a little bit of reflection on this, I I suppose this is a fairly fitting lesson for my children to have foisted upon them during Advent. Because while these themes like peace and hope and love and joy, you know, they're kind of the Christmas Advent headliners, I think you could make a really good case that the Advent theme par excellence is best understood as patience. Advent's about patience. Because I don't know if you have noticed, but um, God just does not appear to be in much of a hurry, does he? Like, why does everything take so long? So unnecessarily long. Any pregnant women in the room care to amen this morning? (coughs) Well, like, how ridiculous is that? How, how ridiculous is it that this process that begins so quickly, so, so, so quickly, sometimes in the blink of an eye? Any other women in the room care to amen? Oh, I, some of y'all just got told on. <laughs> takes so long to finally end. You get it. Everything important <clears throat> seems to take so long. And so it probably shouldn't be a surprise that the Bible is filled with people asking God this question. God, how long? God, why, why does this take so long? God, why are you so slow? Like, you not know, see what's happening here? And this question about God's slowness is at the heart of a text like 2 Peter 3, verses 8 through 9, right? This is what 2 Peter said. It says, don't let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. But the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some 
count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What Peter seems to be getting out here is that what we often experience, interpret as God's slowness, and you've all experienced it, is probably better understood as God's patience. What you experience as God's slowness is better understood as God's patience. And so we're sitting here, we're going, God, why won't you hurry up? Why won't you do this thing? And God's going, because it wouldn't be good for you. It wouldn't be good for you if I hurried up. Because a lot of us, maybe most of us, live with this unspoken but very deep conviction that there's all this stuff that's wrong with my life and the world, and the solution is for God to just fix it, but God refuses to fix it. And so we walk around all day, every day, with this quiet but relentless voice in our head that says, the problem with my life, my marriage, my kids, my husband, my spouse, my job, my whatever, is that there's all this stuff wrong, and God won't just fix it. That's the problem with it. And in addition to setting yourself up for a life of constant misery and myopia, thinking about your life in this way is an enormous anthropological, philosophical, and theological mistake because humans just aren't the kind of thing that can be fixed. Follow me? Humans aren't the kind of thing that can be fixed because humans are not machines. And we are not computers. We are not algorithms, at least not yet. Elon may get us there, but we're not algorithms yet. And so we simply cannot be fixed. And this is why it's so important to understand that God is more of a grower than a fixer. God is more of a grower than a fixer. Right, like, do you remember that parable Jesus told where he said that God was like a, like a mechanic who fixes a car? Said God was like an IT expert who fixes a computer, like a coder who fixes an algorithm. Do you remember that parable? No, you don't. No offense to all those people, but that's just not the primary kind of action that God takes with humans because, again, humans are not the kind of thing that can be fixed. And so when Jesus wants to tell us what God is like, what does he say? What's God like? Well, he says, you know, God's like a, God's like a sower who plants a tiny seed and then lets it slowly grow up into a tree. That's what God's like. Speaking of trees, do any of you like trees? Is that a weird question? I like trees. Big tree guy. Uh, I don't mean to be a tree snob, but I am from East Texas, where we have 100-foot-tall pine trees, as far as the eye can see, which is not far because 100-foot-tall pine trees everywhere. And so um, it, it took me a little while when I got to Central Texas to appreciate the Central Texas tree offerings because aside from the majestic Central Texas live oak, don't take this the wrong way, but your Central Texas trees, they're kind of wimpy, right? You know, I'm a native at this point, okay? <clears throat> I've accepted You have wimpy trees, okay? It's just the truth. And so it took me a while. But anyways, <clears throat> I like trees, and I'm a novice tree connoisseur, which I think means I'm getting old. Isn't that what that means? When you start taking interest in trees in history, it's what we call early onset old. And I think I'm coming down with it. Recently learned a fun fact about trees, though. So, a baby tree, a baby tree sapling, it spends its first few decades growing shaded under a mother tree's canopy, right? It drops down, you go under your mother tree, which means it gets almost no sunlight, which means it grows very, very slowly. For decades, it grows very, very slowly. 
And this is actually really good for a baby tree because it allows its bark and its wood to densify and get solid. And this is really important so it can be a hardy, sturdy tree for a really, really, really long time. But if you plant a tree out in an open field, something very interesting happens. Now, free from, you know, uh, <clears throat> sulking in the shade of the mother tree's canopy, a tree out in the field, it just devours all this sunlight. And so it grows up really, 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 really fast which is really, really, really bad for a tree because it means that its bark and its wood is very flimsy. It's very airy because it never had the time to densify and flimsy, airy bark and wood is a breeding ground for fungus and disease. And so as Forrester Peter Wollobon says, a tree that grows quickly rots quickly and therefore it never has a chance to grow old. You grow quickly, you rot quickly, you're not around for long. You can find all kinds of examples of this scattered throughout creation, right? that God has created a world that takes time. Have you noticed? Lots and lots and lots of time. And that thus demands patience. Lots and lots and lots of patience because God's goal is to grow goodness in us. And this is why the constant search, you know, for like life hacks and shortcuts, it is almost without fail a mark of profound immaturity because y'all virtue, the most important thing in the world, virtue. Virtue can't be microwaved. There's no shortcut to virtue. There's no life hack to virtue. Virtue can only be grown and grown very slowly. And so this is why we all need to have a little talk with that little voice inside our heads that says, well, you know, man, the problem with my life, my marriage, my family, my kids, my job, my friends, my spouse is that God won't just fix it. <clears throat> That's the problem with my life because in point of fact, no, the problem with your life is not that God refuses to fix it. No, rather the problem with your life is your refusal to accept that God is in the process of patiently growing goodness in you. And so we say, God, fix it, fix it, God. And God says, no, I'm not going to fix it because I'm busy growing you. That's what I'm doing. I'm a grower, not a fixer. And so stop demanding to be fixed and start submitting to being grown because you're a human being. You're not the sort of thing that can be fixed. You can only be grown. And that brings us to the second way that God's gracious work in our midst tends to instigate provocation and offense in us, and it has to do with other people. To be more specific, God often offends us because God insists on including people who we do not think should be included. This brings us back to Isaiah and Jesus here. When we walk through Isaiah 35, we know that this homecoming prophecy poem ends with this image of the holy way, this path, this road that God's people would walk to get back home. And as you probably noticed, Isaiah's expectation was that God's holy way would be reserved for who? For holy people, right? It's only holy people who get to be on the holy way. Let's listen to verse 8 again. He says, a highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it. But it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. And so think about this, okay? Think about this. You're a loyal and faithful Jew who knows Isaiah 35, and you seek to walk the holy way, and thus you seek to avoid the unholiness of unholy people who don't belong on the holy way. And then this alleged Messiah from Nazareth shows up, and he does not appear to be walking the holy way, does he? 
Because he not only does not avoid, but he actively seeks out unclean and unholy people, prostitutes, tax collectors, social pariahs. And this puts you in a really difficult situation because you genuinely want to live a good and holy life. And you genuinely think that Jesus is including people who are too unholy to be included. And this genuinely offends you. It's unrighteous. It's wrong. And as much as we all like to tell ourselves that, you know, had we lived back then, well, we would have seen Jesus for who he was. We would have been able to graciously accept his inclusive work. I just, I think that's given ourselves way too much credit because y'all, is there somebody who you think is too unclean to be included? Hmm? Say their name on the count of three. One, two, three. Jordan. Oh, wait. Oh, not you, Jordan, our worship pastor. I'm sure you're great. I got a long list of people I carry it in my back pocket just in case the Lord ever asked me. Well, God, here's a few who shouldn't make it, you know. I bet there are a lot of people who you think are too unclean to be included in the holy way. Maybe they're terrible people. I'm sure some of them are. But I got some bad news for you. Jesus is, is doing everything in his power, which is quite considerable as I understand it, to find a way to include even those people who you think should not be included. And this is like the one thing that Isaiah missed, or maybe you know he, he got it, but in a way he could have never anticipated, because will there be unclean people on the holy way? Well, I am sure hoping so, right? Fingers crossed. Or else y'all all in trouble, right? I, I hope there will be, because uh, in the sense that, like, y'all, everybody is unclean. I hope that's not news to you. If it is, you should really ask your spouse to be more honest with you. <laughs> but God sent a way, right? God sent Jesus to make a way for unclean people to be included in the holy way. And there's so many different names for this phenomenon, justification, salvation, reconciliation, redemption. But at rock bottom, they all gesture at this most gracious good news that God in Christ has found a way to make a way for absolutely everybody. And that's what Advent is about. God and Christ making a way for you. And making a way even for those, and especially those who you think he should not make a way for. And then making us all walk this way patiently together. And blessed is he who does not take offense at this. Blessed is he who patiently welcomes it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you so much for the gift of today. We do not and could never deserve to be here. We are because and only because of good and gracious. God has decided to host us for another day. We come before you, and I know that in this room there are a lot of people who are wondering, who are asking, how long, Lord? People who have asked for healing and their bodies, and their marriages, and their families, and their jobs. And those prayers seem to have gone unanswered. God, there's a lot of pain. And so we ask that today you would remind us that you are not slow, but you are patient. You are not a fixer. You are a grower. You are patiently growing goodness 
in us. And we pray that you would help us to see that and receive it. We, we also pray, God, that you would help us to see that you have found a way to make a way for every last person. And we pray that you would help us to be people who make it clear that everybody has a place around Jesus' table, no matter what they have done. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.